Welcome to another special edition of the ACG Analytics Podcast. This is David Metzner, Managing Partner. We are continuing our podcast series from home during the coronavirus pandemic. As a result of the following is a lightly edited version of a policy call we have already held. We will now proceed with the podcast. David Metzner. Welcome to the weekly macro call from Washington, D.C. Today's call, as is the tradition, will be led by Chris Jorinsky, our lead international analyst. Joining Chris is John East, our head of research. None of our research goes out without John's approval or Gustaville. With that quick introduction, I turn it over to Chris to lead today's discussion. Chris. Thank you, David, and thanks, everybody, for joining us, including the ACG Analytics panel. We've got a lot of takeaways from the call with Congressman Gallagher this morning, and we've had significant developments in the bipartisan infrastructure talks in Washington, D.C., and John East will give us a prognostication as to the durability of those talks. We'll also touch on some developments in the M&A space in Europe, geopolitical developments in Belarus. So with that, John, E.C., seems to have, you know, come full circle from bipartisan talks are dead to now the Biden administration saying, okay, we're going to continue bipartisan talks. That Memorial Day deadline that we have been talking about as being a hard deadline no longer seems so hard. What changed and, you know, what do you view as, um, you know, the takeaways from this latest Republican senatorial offer? I wouldn't say it was ever a hard deadline, but it was definitely a soft deadline, quoted quite openly as, as what negotiators on both sides were hoping to accomplish. But in D.C., deadlines often slip a little. So this is about a week extension as the negotiators reassess their positions. I think there's some room for Republicans to go up this morning. The discussions led by Senator Capito of West Virginia uh, unveiled roughly a $930 billion proposal. The White House has already received it fairly warmly but stated that it falls short in rail investment, falls short in public transportation investment, in water infrastructure investment, and also other things that Republicans are are probably not going to budge much on, including construction of hospitals and and some other rather softer or human infrastructure or, or, or infrastructure that is traditionally taken care of in other legislation. So I didn't totally understand the White House talking about some of the lack of investment there. There is more money for rail, quite frankly, quite a bit, about $20 billion more than rail would ordinarily receive. The president had wanted $80 billion, but I think what's really going on there is he wants to add more rail line. And so what you have is not enough money really to construct new passenger routes, but money that would be used to shore up existing routes. On the public transportation side, I do have to agree with the White House. Even though public transportation gets almost $100 billion under this proposal, that, that went through Senator Toomey, who's ranking member on Senate Banking. Senate Banking, believe it or not, has jurisdiction over public transportation. And if you look at what the traditional five-year bill would have spent on public transportation, and now you go to this eight-year offer, there was no increase for creating more public transportation in the country. So it basically held that flat. But it's not quite at a trillion dollars yet, so I think this was done by design to allow the White House to come back and come up with more money. Biggest problem, though, is the pay-for. And the majority of this comes from the existing transportation trust fund and through repurposing unspent coronavirus funds. The unspent coronavirus funds are about $700 billion, and there's about, I think it's like 
$300 billion right now in the Transportation Trust Fund. So the White House doesn't really want to repurpose a lot of these pandemic relief dollars, and without repurposing them, there's no new pay-for. So that's going to be a sticking point. As, you know, we talked this morning with Congressman Gallagher about the state of bipartisanship in D.C. and how really onlookers tend to think of it as like the squad versus like Marjorie Taylor Greene. And it's not really that simple. So do you think, you know, in, in, and I would also say that part of our view now is that there's not enough Democrats to support a massive reconciliation package because a lot of them have some of these same concerns with spending. So, you know, what do you think about the state of bipartisanship here, you know, with this group of seemingly like 10 to 20 senators on both sides of the aisle working towards this deal? Is it something where the Biden administration ultimately will concede to them and say, all right, we're going to come down from 1.7 to something smaller? You know, and what do you see as that potential number at the bottom for Democrats? Well, if Democrats had the vote, they would have already invoked reconciliation or they would be invoking it like right now. So they don't have the votes yet. Senator Manchin has said, I'm not going to vote for it. A single defection in the Senate tanks the whole thing. You also have many members in the House and the Senate on the Democratic side who want the bipartisan talk to succeed. They're they're not sticking their necks out like Senator Manchin is, but they are there. You can't count on their votes yet. I know a number of them. I'm sure they're more than, than I identified, but that's the issue. So you may recall that Republicans spent the opening days of the Trump administration on their ill-fated quest to repeal parts of Obamacare. And at the end of the day, Senator McCain trots out to the Senate floor. No one knows how he's going to vote. And he puts his thumb down and killed the whole effort. And basically that ate up months and months and months of time. So Democrats have no interest in another John McCain moment. No party would. And so I think that some of the renewed interest, bipartisan talks, is is a realization that, A, they had to engage in them in the first place to try to get those resistant to reconciliation on board and say, look, at least we gave it the old college try. But even at this point, they're not on board yet. You cannot vote reconciliation until you know you have the votes. Well, one of the other takeaways here is that we, we've talked a lot about whether or not lawmakers in the White House are paying attention to inflation. And I think we all have differing views on this. You know, it's certainly, you know, something that the White House itself is paying attention to. Like, we, we know that for a fact. We know that Treasury Secretary Yellen is paying attention to it. But, you know, the question is, do ordinary lawmakers, you know, think of this as this part of their, you know, their rationale when they're thinking about how big this infrastructure package is? Or are they just talking about the deficit, you know, writ large without thinking about the inflationary consequences? Representative Gallagher this morning seemed to indicate that in his mind, there's a disconnect until consumers start to feel it in their pockets, which we may not really be there yet. I'm not going to second-guess Congressman Gallagher. He knows his district. I would say, though, that uh, Republicans are already starting to put inflation, in fact, stagflation, into ads. You see it on social media in conservative circles, which harkens back to the Carter administration. Stagflation is when you have high unemployment and inflation at the same time. So you basically undercut the Fed's dual mandate at, at both ends. But and, I, and John Turek can speak to that better than I can. But I see a lot of people who are talking about inflation. Now, some of these may be transitory price increases, but I don't know that Americans are going to distinguish in the short run if the economy doesn't work these things out between going to the grocery store and having a higher than usual bill and inflation. So it is, I think, a potent line of attack. And I've already started seeing it in remarks that Republicans make on television and in ads. 
taking all this into consideration, then, I mean, how has your view changed here in terms of outcome? You know, is the view still that we're going to have a reconciliation bill, you know, at the end of Q3, or are we firmly now starting to see the contours of, you know, this bipartisan deal take, take shape, largely because Democrats don't have the vote for reconciliation? That's a trickier question. So it's very likely that we'll get a bipartisan traditional infrastructure bill. And when you look at the proposal released today, it is taking a lot of money that is ordinarily in a five-year surface transportation bill, bumping it up to meet eight-year limit and putting it in this proposal. You still might get a smaller surface transportation bill to deal with some other things that don't get put in here for whatever reason. But the Environment and Public Works Committee, of which Senator Capito, who's been leading the discussions as the ranking member, passed a bill out of committee unanimously yesterday. But a lot of what they passed is reflected in this new proposal. But Democrats still have the opportunity for not one, but two potential reconciliation bills if they pass this. Now, I don't know that there's going to be enough time to get to two, but some of what Republicans are opposing in Biden's plan They said today in a memo to the White House, it's not that we are going to oppose money for some of these priorities that you've included here, but we hope that they would be addressed in other legislation. Now, that could be other legislation through regular order. That's probably what Republicans want. But it also preserves the ability for Democrats, if they have the vote, to move there are other priorities that are, have not traditionally been counted as infrastructure, things like increasing paid medical leave, you know, unionization efforts, other things, not all of which are going to be reflected in the president's budget tomorrow, not all of which are really amenable to reconciliation, but they will have the opportunity at least to try. Hey, you, you, before we move out of D.C., you, you brought up the budget, and I hadn't asked anything about that yet. It seems like, you know, what was it, $6 trillion-ish is what his, his request will be. How do you see that playing out and interplaying with some of of these infrastructure negotiations? Well, the president's budget is assuming that he gets a $4 trillion infrastructure package passed in reconciliation. I don't know that the president's budget is going to really reflect reality when all is said and done. Of course, the joke in D.C. is the president proposes and the Congress disposes, although, to be fair, the president has a House and Senate that are far more likely to go along with a lot of what he proposes than other presidents have enjoyed. But don't think the budget is irrelevant, but I I would take it with a big salt shaker of salt and look for concrete proposals in there that might be incorporated into other legislation rather than looking at it as something that is going to fly through Congress. All right. Well, we know now that these bipartisan negotiations are going to be going on a little bit longer than this weekend. So, John, that means you get a little bit more fun following this. It feels like we've been doing so for a year and a half now since the start of the pandemic. So we'll be monitoring how this uh, all transpires in D.C., Bart, I'd like to transition over to Europe now. Um, you know, you had flagged for me that while this Digital Markets Act has been around for a little while, you're, you're starting to see several important European countries coalesce around a little bit tighter restrictions on M&A activity. Why don't you give us an update as to what you're seeing? There? Yeah, thank you, Chris. This, this broke today. There was a scheduled meeting of the ministers of economic affairs of the, of the EU member states. Like you say, Chris, the EU has been working on proposals for future tech regulation form of a digital market act for some time. Germany and France today, and they're joined by the Netherlands, have said that those proposals lack ambition, and they specifically wanted want to make it more difficult for large companies, basically large U.S. tech companies, especially Facebook, to buy startups. The example that has been 
cited in the public domain by policymakers is um, Facebook's purchases back in the day of WhatsApp and Instagram. If those uh, acquisitions were to come in front of European uh, antitrust regulators again, they should have the tools to, to deny them. So they have a paper uh, that they presented to the other economic ministers, push that and sharpen uh, the digital markets back significantly in this, in this area. So this is not a done deal. It is significant that France and Germany have joined forces to do this. That means that it's, um, it'll, it'll get a high level of priority in, in Brussels and may well. When you say move quickly, you know, for somebody based in the United States here, I mean, if you see Germany and France on the same side of such, you know, important legislation, does that mean that, you know, quickly is, like, what, what, what timeline is quickly this year? So, so it's important. It's the focal point of, uh, of this commission. Yeah, you know, it kind of makes me think of taking in context with the rest of the way that Europe is considering M&A activity mm-hmm. generally. There's been a focus on, you know, greater scrutiny on foreign direct investment in I mean, is this all part of just the same narrative that, you know, we're moving towards a tighter regulatory environment for inflows into Europe? Yes. I, I have to say that on the other stuff, you know, is it desirable for China to own, for example, the telecom networks in, in Europe? Europe is moving very slow, much more slowly than the U.S. and the U.K. But, yeah, there's some there's some mass in thinking. This is very particular about Facebook and, and Facebook's kind of influence on election, democracy, uh, Russian interference. So this is aimed at U.S. Tech. Well, something that they surprisingly did move fast on. We have to touch on Belarus as just a, a, a geopolitical, you know, flashpoint for us here. I, it was relatively surprising that Europe moved so fast to one, you know, consider sectoral sanctions and also shut down their airspace to Belarusian flights. Yeah, they. Uh, this was a test that they couldn't afford to fail. So obvious it was viewed in Brussels as an attack on EU sovereignty. You know, the, the fight between two EU capitals full of EU citizens gets separated from that or something. It helps that you know the economic relationships between Belarus, vast majority of the EU, are the minimum. Um, sanctions probably will not change uh, Lukashenko's behavior. Lukashenko, as long as he's supportive of Putin, which is solidly and um, isn't economically dependent on Europe. Few commodities they export, they can sell in global markets to other countries. So it probably won't affect his behavior. I would like to thank everyone for joining us today. I'd also like to thank our team of analysts for offering their unique insights. You can also follow us on Twitter for further insight into capital markets and the political economy. If you wish to reach out for more information, please email us at research at acg-analytics.com. Everyone have a good day. Thank you very much.